0: It's the Victorian Variety Show. His most famous, and possibly apocryphal, Mishap, involved an operation during which he worked so rapidly that he took off three of his assistant's fingers and, while switching blades... Slashed a spectator's coat. Both the assistant and the patient died later of gangrene, and the unfortunate bystander expired on the spot from fright. It is the only surgery in history said to have had a 300% fatality rate. Welcome to the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I talk about topics that I don't think got enough attention in media coverage of or high school or college classes on the Victorian era. That's a generalization. You might see a news story every now and then that mentions a unique fact about life in the Victorian era or see one on a TV show. But like to see some of the things I talk about on this show brought to more people's attention, not only because I think they're interesting, but also because I think having an understanding of this time period helps to put certain aspects of our own era into better perspective. And in some cases, some phenomena that originated in the Victorian period are still with us today in some way, shape, or form, regardless of whether we realize it. My name is Marissa and this is my attempt to put an intro into this show. It's only been about seven months since it started. I don't know. I just felt like the show needed a little something extra at the beginning because sometimes I get right into what I'm going to talk about. And, you know, I'd like to make that a little more gradual, kind of warm up a little bit. But anyway, I love to read and research pretty much everything about the Victorian era. And the quote that I opened the show with today is part of a description of the famed Scottish surgeon Robert Liston that appears in a book that I'm currently reading. The book, which you may have heard of, was written by Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. I think it came out in 2017. And it's called The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grizzly World of Victorian Medicine. I chose this quote not only because it's an attention grabber, for sure. I mean, come on, a 300% mortality rate? Who even thought such a thing could exist? But also because I think it sets the tone for what I'm going to discuss in this episode, Victorian-era surgery. Although Liston's operation, and I do want to make clear, Robert Liston, who performed the operation that I spoke about at the beginning of this episode and Joseph Lister, who is the subject of Fitzharris's book are two entirely different people. I know their last names sound very similar. Um, I just wanted to just wanted to clarify that up at the top. Although Liston's operation may sound like a tragic debacle or a long lost Monty Python sketch, depending on how you look at something like this, as I just mentioned, Liston was famed in his time he wasn't viewed as an incompetent disgrace he didn't lose his license or anything like that and hopefully by the end of this episode you'll have a better understanding of how someone like liston was so widely respected in his time and to make that clear you don't have to agree with that belief but you can at least have an understanding i think of how someone like liston could be respected but I also wanna say that I intend for this episode to serve as more of an overview of Victorian era surgery because it's a topic that I think I'll wanna revisit in a future episode. I can say the same for Fitzharris's book. I've been enjoying it greatly. I'm actually listening to the audiobook version which is narrated by Ralph Lister who is an actor whom I believe is a distant relation of the British surgeon Joseph Lister. But I think it's an important book to read if you're interested in learning more about life during the Victorian era. And although I'm going to talk briefly about Joseph Lister later on in this episode, he played such a big role in changing surgical practices for the better that I think he's deserving of his own episode. But today, I'm just going to talk about some general practices that were seen among surgeons in the 19th century. And also, I'm going to focus mainly on surgery in the UK during that period, because most of the sources I consulted for this episode focused on the UK. But I am hoping to talk about surgery in the US and other parts of the world in future episodes. As I originally said in my episode on Victorian era pharmacies a few months ago, there were three types of medical practitioners during the Victorian era. At the top of the hierarchy, because there was a hierarchy when it came to medical practitioners, were physicians who normally attended prestigious universities, were licensed by the Royal College of Physicians in the UK and catered to the wealthy. But for the most part, physicians lacked clinical practice and almost never treated a patient's external injuries. At the opposite end of the spectrum were pharmacies, who were also known as chemists and apothecaries, who were usually managed by people who often served as apprentices for a certain period of time and had some practical hospital experience in many cases but for the most part, lacked formal training. Pharmacies filled prescriptions that were written by physicians, but mostly served those who weren't able to afford a physician's services. And as a result, many pharmacies offered limited surgical services, such as maybe setting broken bones, treating wounds, pulling teeth, that type of thing. The third category, surgeons, took the patients whom you might say, needed treatment that was too complex for pharmacies and too messy for physicians. In terms of prestige, surgeons ranked below physicians because traditionally, surgeons were closely associated with barbers in many parts of the world. In England, this changed somewhat in 1745, when, through an act of parliament, surgery was recognized as different from the type of services that are more commonly associated with barbers nowadays. Although, as Cherish or Chayish Merriweather points out in an article called 10 Gruesome and Shocking Facts About Victorian Surgery, barbers in war times, such as during the Crimean War in the 1850s, were still occasionally recruited to assist on the battlefield. So, if you've ever wondered what those red and white stripes on the pole outside your friendly neighborhood barbershop mean, now you know. Even though surgeons were not as highly esteemed as physicians in Victorian times, and since formal education was expensive, many surgeons learned their trade as apprentices, there were some standards in place for surgeons. According to the Steampunk Tribune, surgeons needed to be licensed. And in 1843, the Royal College of Surgeons created a fellowship. I got that from the Royal College of Surgeons website, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, along with all of the other sources I consulted in preparing this episode. Over time, the exams became more rigorous and surgical students were able to take specialist courses. And by the 1880s, joint exams were held with the Royal College of Physicians. This is pretty impressive progress when you consider that until the passage of the Anatomy Act of 1832. Many up-and-coming surgeons got the bodies that they practiced on from graveyards, although according to a few of the sources that I looked at, after the Anatomy Act was passed and they couldn't get bodies from graveyards anymore, a lot of would-be surgeons experimented on patients who'd expired on operating tables. And as we look at these advancements, it is also important to keep in mind some of the predominant attitudes among members of the medical community during the Victorian time, as I'm about to get into. To put it mildly for a good portion of the Victorian era, the connection between germs and illness was largely unknown. First of all, It's important to note that many people during this era treated themselves at home or if they had the means were treated at their homes by physicians or surgeons and went to hospitals only as a last resort. As DG Hewitt explains in 19 unbelievable and gruesome facts about 19th century surgery, many hospitals during this time were filthy. So it was common for people to not make it out of hospitals alive due to infection, whether because they were in overcrowded rooms with other patients suffering from a highly contagious airborne illness or because the surgeon who operated on them didn't patch them up properly. According to Hewitt, up to one in four surgery patients died, either during the operation or within 24 hours afterward. This is why the aforementioned Robert Liston, who lost one in 10 patients, was considered a success by most people. Victorian surgical theaters were no cleaner than hospital rooms. Surgeons not only wore aprons and clothing that were covered in blood and guts, they did so with pride because it showed that they were in demand. According to Hewitt, the surgeon, Sir Frederick Travis, once said, quote, There was no object in being clean. Indeed, cleanliness was out of place. It was considered to be finicking and affected. An executioner might as well manicure his nails before chopping off a head. End quote. This type of attitude extended to the tools surgeons used many of them use their own scalpels and saws and if you're thinking they generally didn't wash or sterilize them between patients you would be correct Hewitt adds that surgeons normally would mark a notch on their saws each time they amputated a limb you know to keep track and i probably don't need to say this but i will anyway surgeons during this period were not known for washing their hands so, hopefully, you now understand why pus, which I think it's safe to assume is widely regarded today as a sign of infection, was considered a good thing during Victorian times. So much so that it was even referred to as, quote, the laudable pus, end quote. In an interview with Sarah Zhang called The Gruesome Bloody World of Victorian Surgery, Lindsay Fitzharris refers to Victorian era operations as, quote, slow moving executions, end quote, due to the high risk of infection. Of course, many patients never made it that far. Surgeons worked quickly during the Victorian era, not so much because they were reckless, although an argument could be made that the speed at which they worked led to a lot of unnecessary errors but because they had to. Early on in the Victorian era, patients weren't anesthetized. So as you might imagine, someone who needed to have a limb amputated probably wanted it done quickly, if not painlessly. This started to change in the 1840s with the introduction of ether and chloroform, both of which proved problematic in their own way. Ether, which was first used in the UK by Robert Liston not only induced vomiting, but was flammable. And chloroform, which was often administered to women in labor, including Queen Victoria, could paralyze the lungs if too large a dose was administered and was found to be carcinogenic in the early 20th century. Surgeons also needed to work quickly because, as Hewitt points out, amputations that were performed quickly were easier to patch up and as a result, the patient would be less likely to bleed to death. One way to stop the blood flow, hot irons. Still, based on how blood and pus were seen as positive signs, it's easy to imagine that many people during this time associated speed with success, which also contributed to Liston's success. Known as the fastest knife in the West End, According to Goran Blazeski, Liston could reputedly remove a limb in 28 seconds. And the reason this was timed was because he'd say, time me, gentlemen, at the beginning of every procedure. So now you may be picturing the blood and grime on the clothes and tools of a Victorian surgeon and his assistants. And you may be imagining what the poor patient might be going through lying on the table, either in anticipation of surgery without anesthesia or bleeding out, and you may be thinking that it couldn't have gotten any worse, and you'd be wrong, at least if you're the type of person who values privacy because surgeons often performed in front of large crowds, which included not only surgeons eager to assess the work of their peers and medical students hoping to learn a few tricks of the trade, so to speak, but also members of the public who, as Hewitt notes, often kept their dirty street clothes on as they watched. Although a number of hospitals had theaters with rows that looked very much like something you'd see in a movie theater or community playhouse. These venues could become dangerously crowded for spectators and surgeons alike. So going back to the operation I talked about at the top, I don't know whether the deceased bystander got too close because it was that crowded inside the operating theater, or because he was so curious about what Liston was doing that he felt the need to watch him as he operated over his shoulder. And also, I want to reiterate that the man died from fear, probably a heart attack, rather than a mortal wound from Liston slashing his coat. But I can easily picture an audience member getting too close and paying a severe price for it. Fortunately, As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Victorian era was a time when people were questioning the traditions of previous generations and developing an interest in advancement in numerous areas, including science and medicine. One individual who helped to change things for the better was a physician named John Snow, who in the 1840s and 50s, was extremely critical of the so-called miasma theory of disease, the dominant theory at the time, which posited that so-called bad air is responsible for diseases like plague and cholera. And in 1854, tied a cholera outbreak in London to a local water supply. And of course, in the surgical community, you had Joseph Lister, who in the second half of the 19th century, made the connection between germs that were on surgeons' aprons and tools, on operating tables, and just about everywhere else you looked in the hospitals at the time, and the number of patients who were dying. And, by incorporating Louis Pasteur's germ theory into his work, started developing antiseptic techniques that... As Fitzharris tells Alexander McNamara in an article called Joseph Lister and the Grim Reality of Victorian Surgery, quote, saved thousands of lives in his own time and continues to save lives today as we now operate with the knowledge that germs exist, end quote. Fitzharris goes on to tell McNamara that Lister did receive a great deal of resistance from the medical community at the time and that Lister's methods were adopted mainly in the decades that followed. As Fitzharris explains, as difficult as it may be for us, looking back in hindsight, to believe this, many surgeons of the time didn't want to accept the fact that many of their patients were dying for a reason that was most likely preventable. Again, I do hope to talk more about Lister and Fitzharris' book in an upcoming episode. But I'm going to end this discussion by saying that even though I am really glad antisepsis gained traction in the medical community, and that on the whole, medical procedures are much more sanitary now, the current situation is still far from perfect. And I'm not talking about anything necessarily related to COVID here. Rather, I'm thinking of MRSA, which stands for Methicillin-Resistant Staphylococcus aureus, one strain of which usually affects people in hospitals and nursing homes and such. And I bring that up not to criticize the medical community. In some cases, outbreaks occur because of viruses mutating and factors beyond human control, but rather to emphasize that medicine is a dynamic field. And as a result, there will hopefully always be a need for great medical minds like Joseph Lister to make new discoveries for future generations of surgeons to adopt. But anyway, let me know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at@, at VictorianVariE1. and you can support the show financially if you'd like, at Marissa marissadf 13 And I'd also greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or wherever you're listening, because that'll help a lot more people find out about this show. I want to thank you for listening and for all of your help in getting the word out about my show. At the time of this podcast episode, this show is in the top 100 on the Indie History Chart on the Good Pods app, which I think is amazing. It's something I frankly didn't expect, and it makes me feel really good that you're enjoying my show and this fascinating historical period. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But for now, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Joseph Lister that I found online. I think this is a good example of a man who not only was deeply passionate about his profession, but demonstrated how strong that passion was by searching for a way to improve upon it and ultimately transforming it in ways that were previously unimaginable. If the love of surgery is a proof of a person's being adapted for it, then certainly I am fitted to be a surgeon. For thou canst hardly conceive what a high degree of enjoyment I am from day to day experiencing in this bloody and butchering department of the healing art. I am more and more delighted with my profession.